Let's pray together. As we pray, if you want to remain standing, that's fine. If you want to take a seat, that's okay too. The posture of our bodies is not nearly as important as the posture of our hearts. As we go to prayer, Psalm 25, David says, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Do not let me be ashamed. Do not let my enemies exult over me. Indeed, here's the promise, the hope we celebrate this morning. None of those who wait for the Lord will be ashamed, while those who deal treacherously without cause will be. So David says, Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. And for you I wait all the day. Father, we thank you this morning that all the things we've sung such a variety, Lord, we've we've been reminded of of such an incredible scope of, of who you are. You're the good, good Father, and yet you're the almighty, sovereign King of royalty. You're over and above us all, Father. You're, you're, there, there's so many ways you're, you're not like us whatsoever. We can't even begin to search you out. And yet at the same time, and, and we know this so clearly and so personally through the sending of your Son, Jesus Christ, you are a personal, close friend. You walk beside us. Your Spirit as believers lives within us. You promise that if we trust in you with all our heart and and not lean on our own understanding, but in all our ways acknowledge you. You will direct our paths. You will teach us your ways. You will show us what it means to live as shining lights in a dark generation. Father, that's why we come back to worship. Father, we need those reminders. We need the encouragement. Father, we don't just need our spirits lifted. We need our, our souls restored, our hearts renewed, our faith reignited. Father, we find that when we come together as your people and we celebrate your great name. And then, Father, we turn, as we're going to do now, our attention to your word. Father, we come from all sorts of different circumstances in our week. We come uh, from, from joyful ones, and, and, and we come from sorrowful ones, and we come from good weeks and bad weeks. And, Father, even this morning, many of us have probably uh, awakened to challenges and, and, and even heartaches. Father, there's no way a sermon can speak to any of that, much less all of it. But you can speak. When your word is opened and your spirit moves, Father, you can deal with each of us in the most personal and powerful of ways. And I'm just going to ask that for the next few minutes, that's exactly what you do. Father, not through anything I have to say, but through the wonderful, powerful ministry of your Holy Spirit. Father, we ask this morning as we look at your word, Father, that we we take it in our hands and in our hearts as the treasure that it is, a gift from you to show us who you are, that you are a good, good Father, and that you have plans and purposes for our lives. And Father, I'm just going to ask as always as we open your word now that you guide us in truth because your word is truth and there's nothing else like it. Father, that you would guard us from error, from confusion, from misunderstanding. Lord, this is a confused and a confusing day in which we live and we need clarity, the clarity that comes from your word. Father, I ask also now, even though we've had the opportunity already, just that as we go to your word that you'd deliver our, us from from proud hearts and broken hearts and apathetic hearts and whatever else we carried in with us, just sweep it all away so that for the next few minutes together we might see Jesus. Father, may we see Jesus clearly this morning as we study your word. May we see Jesus only this morning as we study your word. In a little while, Lord, we want to leave and we want to leave rejoicing. Father, I pray it'll be more than just because we came to church and had a nice time. I pray we'll leave rejoicing because we realize that in these few minutes together we get to sit at the feet of Jesus who loves us and has so much to teach us. So teach us, Lord, 
You be the one who does it now. And we ask in Jesus' name and for his glory we pray. Amen. You may be seated. While you're taking your seats, we'll dismiss any boys and girls for Children's Church. If there's any five-year-olds up to our second graders, they can head out that back door for Children's Church. And I want to invite everybody else to grab a Bible. I hope you have one with you. If you don't, uh, get hold of one or get next to someone who does. And I want you to turn in your Bible with me this morning to the book of Psalms. And specifically, I want you to make your way to Psalm 7. Last week we were in Psalms 1 and 2. We looked at both of those, at least however briefly. This morning we're moving ahead a few chapters to Psalm 7. And for those of you who may be visiting this morning or may have missed last week or maybe you were here and you just have no idea what happened last Sunday, we have begun a brand new series of studies in God's Word. We're really continuing with a theme all through the fall and right up to Christmas time. If you were part of our, our, our Sunday morning services, you know we were, we've been studying prayer. What does it mean to be praying people? What does it mean to be a house of prayer? And we laid down a lot of principles and we saw a lot of things. And now what we're doing, we're very much continuing in that vein, only I guess in a sense we're going to get more practical. In that we are beginning, and for the next many weeks, going to spend time looking at selected psalms. And as I told you last Sunday, what we're doing in the book of Psalms is specifically looking at the Psalms in order to to understand how to use them as they were originally intended, as tools, as instruments, as a means for conversing with God. The Psalms weren't merely there to make us feel good. Psalm 23, Psalm 100, these are wonderful Psalms, but they're not just there to lift our spirits. The Psalms were originally written and given to us as tools, as instruments to pray. And so that's the very specific focus, emphasis we're taking as we get into, week after week, a variety of different psalms. And as I suggested to you last Sunday, and I'll say this again a a bit more in a moment, I think what you're going to discover, what I hope you discover about the psalms is what I've discovered. And it is a, a fairly recent and personal discovery that the psalms speak to every season of life. It doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter what you're dealing with, what you're going through, good or bad, The Psalms have something to say. In Psalm 7, we're going to look at this. We're going to read the whole psalm in its entirety in just a few minutes. But before we do, to get ourselves started, I want to begin by saying that that I don't know whether you've noticed this or not, but it's caucus season in Iowa. Has anybody taken notice of this fact? All right, I've noticed. Maybe you have as well. They're just a week away. Praise God, right? One week from tomorrow is caucus night in Iowa. And if you have lived here during past election cycles, if you've been through this process before, you know one thing as well as I do, that the next seven days are going to be anything but dull in our state. There's a lot of interesting things that are going to be done and a lot of interesting things that are going to be said. Because, of course, as caucus day gets closer, the stakes get higher. And as the stakes get higher, the rhetoric gets more interesting and it gets more intense. And what you're going to see, as we've seen many times before, is that between now and that day when those votes are cast, the proclamations, the declarations, the accusations, and the insinuations that the candidates direct toward one another are going to run the gamut from the ridiculous on one hand to the slanderous on the other. You're going to hear. If you've not heard it yet, we are going, I'm sure, to hear it all. And, and let me just say that from a certain distance, it's mildly entertaining. I mean, if the stakes weren't so high, if it wasn't such a big deal that, that this was all about, it would be entertaining to listen and to watch all of these words be exchanged back and forth from the ridiculous to the slanderous. But here's my question as we start this morning. What about when it happens to you? 
What about, what is it like, how does it make you feel when someone says something about you that isn't true? Something ridiculous, something slanderous, something that is not, in fact, reality. You didn't do it. You didn't say it. You aren't responsible for it, and yet people are going around acting as if you did or you are. What do you do? What about what happens? How do you feel, whether it's in, when, whether it's in a private conversation or maybe a very public context, your name is smeared? Your reputation is attacked. And despite your protest, maybe even your attempts at direct intervention, intervention, the slander, the attacks, all of it continues. What can you and what should you do as a Christian when people are attacking you? Now, we know the, the right answer. We know it's a very simple answer. The first thing we should do as followers of Jesus Christ is to pray, right? We should pray about the situation because that's always the right answer in everything we do. In fact, as I was thinking about it earlier this week, I was reminded of a song we used to sing. Some of you remember when we did Church in the Park many years ago. Uh, every church in the park, we sang a song, and, the line is in, and one of the lines in that song is this, you can talk about me just as much as you please, but I'll talk about you down on my knees. Prayer is the right way to go. When we've been attacked. That's not just what I say. That's not just what the songs say. That's what Jesus said. He said in the Gospels, love your enemies and what? Pray for those who persecute you. Pray for them. Pray about them. Deal with the situation in prayer. So we know the answer. We know what we are supposed to do. But the question I want us to look at in the psalm we're about to study together this morning is how? How are we supposed to pray? What kind of conversation should you have with God, should I have with God, when people are speaking falsely or worse about us? And that is, in fact, why we're here in Psalm 7 this morning. But before we read it, and as I said, I want to read it in its entirety here in just a moment. Let me just give you a little bit of a little bit of background on, on, on why we think this psalm was written, what it was all about. Because what I think is going to happen is as we look at this psalm for the answer to the question, how should we pray when we're being attacked? And by that I mean individually, or maybe that means just simply be, by, as a group, or, or because we are Christians, we're under attack. I want to tell you right up front that the answer to this question might surprise you. How should we pray about and toward and for those who hate us and those who slander us. But before we get into what the answer is again, let me just tell you a little bit about what we think we know about this particular psalm. Because while we don't know much, we can gather some things, and we can get it before we even get into the first verse. Because if you look at your Bible, right above verse 1, there is an inscription. It is part of the biblical text, and it tells us the following about the seventh psalm. We are told that it is a shigeon of David which he sang to the Lord concerning Cush, a Benjamite. And you read it a second time, and you say, I have no idea what that means. But it means something, and it has several clues we can understand. Because one of the things that tells us, the inscription, before we even get into the psalm itself, is that it was most likely written by David, as it says, in a season of intense personal opposition. It was written at a hard time in David's life. We don't know the exact meaning of that term, shigeon. It appears a couple of different times in the Psalms, but what we think it means or expresses is intense emotion. Deep, personal, intense emotion that is expressed in poetry, that is expressed in song. 
There's something that has David stirred up inside. And the opposition, we're going to see in the psalm, he's, 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 he's stirred up inside. He's feeling intense emotion because he is facing opposition. And he's receiving or he's getting this opposition. The source of it, we're told in that inscription, is coming from someone by the name of Cush. Now, we don't know. Cush never is mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. So we don't know if this is an actual name or it's a symbolic name. But what we are able to tell as we get into the psalm itself is that whoever this Cush character was was spreading serious misinformation about David. He was going around telling people things about David that weren't true, saying David had done things he hadn't done, bad things, misrepresenting him, lying, slandering about him. And the fact that it tells us, again, look at your Bible, that this character Cush was a Benjamite, that's helpful as well. Because what it suggests to us is that perhaps this fellow, whoever he was, was a friend and an associate and advisor of King Saul. King Saul was a Benjamite. He was, he was a descendant of the tribe of Benjamin. He was Israel's first king. And you know the story, many of you know it anyway, that for a long time David and Saul were good friends. They trusted and loved one another as a father and a son, but then they had a falling out. Because Saul saw the threat David posed to his power. David was, in fact, anointed to be Israel's second king. And so the fact that this fellow Cush is opposing David and he is a Benjamite would lead us to believe that perhaps he was someone carrying out Saul's wishes to deal with David to wipe him out, spreading slander, running him down, removing him as a potential opponent to King Saul. That may be the story behind this psalm, but whether it is or whether it isn't, whether that's some of it or all of it, the bottom line as we turn our attention to the psalm itself is this. Whatever this Cush character was doing, whatever this Cush character was saying, it had David rattled. It had him upset. Let's look beginning in verse 1 and I'll show you what I mean. Here's what the Word of God says in Psalm 7. David says, O Lord my God, in you I have taken refuge Save me from those who pursue me and deliver me, or he, this opponent, will tear my soul like a lion, dragging me away while there is none to deliver. O Lord my God, if I've done this, if there's injustice in my hands, if I've rewarded evil to my friend or plundered him who without cause was my adversary, then let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. Let him trample down my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Selah. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift up yourself against the rage of my adversaries. Arouse yourself for me, for you have appointed judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples encompass you, and over them return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Vindicate me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and my integrity that is in me. O let the evil of the wicked come to an end, but establish the righteous. For the righteous God tries the hearts and minds. My shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a judge who has in, and a God who has indignation every day. If a man does not repent, he will sharpen his sword. He has bent his bow and made it ready. He has also prepared for himself deadly weapons. He makes his arrows fiery shafts. Behold he, now this is not God, now David has turned his attention back to whoever this Cush character, his opponent is. He travails with wickedness. He conceives mischief and brings forth falsehood. He has dug a pit and hollowed it out and fallen into the hole which he has made. His mischief will return upon his own head and his violence will descend upon his own pace. And I will give thanks to the Lord according to his righteousness and will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. 
Now again, let me remind you quickly what we're doing here in the psalm so you understand why we're going to approach it as we're about to. We are seeking to understand, to discover how to use the psalms as they were originally intended, as a means for prayerful conversation with God. The psalms are prayers. The psalms are prayers that God's people have prayed, and they are here to guide us in prayer as well. And as I said to you a moment ago, let me say it again, somehow or another, the book of Psalms, there's something in Psalms that speaks to absolutely every imaginable season of life, including, as we're about to see here this morning, our times of personal conflict. When people are slandering us, when the world is opposed to us and saying things that aren't true. The Psalms, this Psalm teaches us how to pray. So here's the question. How do we pray when we're slandered? How do we pray when we, because of our faith in Jesus Christ specifically, are being misrepresented or attacked? Well, here, from his own life perspective, David shows us by giving us, and this is just one way to look at it. I'm sure there may be some others in here as well. I want to show you what I see. I see four sort of, if I can call them, prayer handles in this Psalm. Four places we can grab on and learn to pray in our seasons of slander. I believe, here's what I'm saying, I believe this psalm answers the, the question or explains what Jesus meant when he said to pray for those who persecute us. Because here's how David prayed, four things. First of all, he began in verses 1 and 2. David began his prayer in this season by declaring, number one, Lord, you are my refuge. David began with worship. Because this cry, you are my refuge, if you look at verses 1 and 2 in your Bible, it isn't simply a cry for help. It certainly is that, the first couple of verses of this psalm. David's in trouble, it's hurt, it hurts, he's scared, he's frustrated, he's angry, so he's crying for help. But it's more than that. The first two verses are also in the midst or surrounding this cry for help. They are an expression of worshipful and prayerful trust. Look at verse 1 specifically with me. David begins this way. He says, O Lord, now stop right there. The Hebrew word, name David uses for God there, for Lord, is the, the Hebrew term Jehovah. Jehovah is the eternal, the all-powerful, the needs-nobody's-help-to-do-anything God. The God who is large and in charge, the Almighty One, as we sang earlier. Which, by the way, the term Jehovah also has a thread in it of personal relationship. He's the large and in charge God to whom I belong. He's my friend. He's my good, good father. Oh, Lord, Jehovah, he says. And then he adds another name, my God. Different Hebrew term, Elohim. Jehovah Elohim. Elohim is the majestic, among other things, the majestic creator who keeps everything in the universe spinning according to plan. He's large and in charge, but he's also in all the details. Isn't that a beautiful way to begin? Oh, Lord, my God. That's the one to whom I am calling. He says, in you I have taken refuge. In other words, what David's saying in the first verse or the first couple of verses of, uh, is this. He's saying, Lord, in this trial, in this hard place, this difficult season in life where people are saying all kinds of rotten things about me, and they're spreading all kinds of misinformation about the, who I am and what I've done and the way I behave, all these sorts of things. David is saying this, I am running to you as my safe place. In this hard season of life, I'm coming to you as my safe place. And it's not just because I have nowhere else to turn, although that's true. It's not just because you're the only option I have left. But because I know, again, based on those names, O oh Lord, my God, Jehovah Elohim, you will take me in as my father and as my protector and my defender and my shield, my safe place. 
I'm going to come to you trusting that you, you are exactly who your word says you are. You know what verse 1 is? It's the cry of someone who knows I'm in trouble, but God can handle it. I'm in trouble, but God is in control. And listen, listen, by the time this series is over, you're going to tire of hearing me say what I'm about to say, but that's okay because it means you'll remember it. You're going to tire of hearing me say it because I'm going to say it every single week as much as I am able to do so. This is the way, here's what I'm going to say, the way David begins this psalm is the best way, I said best, the right way, the best way, always to begin praying. Worship. David begins his prayer with worship. That is always the right and the best way to start praying by dwelling on the truth of who God is. Dwelling on his character, dwelling on his nature, his glorious, powerful, unfathomable ways. What I'm saying is this, the best way to begin praying is not with what I need and what I've done and how good I am or how bad I am, how right I am, how wrong I've been. We'll get to that. There's always time for that. But it's, what do we just think? It's who you are. It's who you are. It's, we're going to talk about first. We're going to pray about who he is is. What am I saying? I'm saying the best way to start praying, even under attack, is with a cry of worship. And as David's prayer here goes on to show us in the next few verses, such a look at God, taking a good look at God, and we always talk about this at Fresh Encounter, and if you haven't been there, come join us. You'll hear me say it again. Sooner or later, a good look at God always prompts a good look at yourself. You'll get around to what's going on in your heart. And that's, the, that's what happens to David here next in verses 3 through 5. He begins his first prayer handle is, Lord, you are my refuge. I'm coming to you because of who you are. But the second thing David says as he prays about this terrible situation, this slander being directed against him is this, make sure I'm clean. Prayer handle number two, now Lord, make sure I'm clean. We've looked to you, now I want you to look at me. You know, it's always, and if you've read your Bible, you know this. It's always essential to have a humble heart when you pray. It's always, always essential that when we come to God in prayer, we do so with a heart of of humility, a willingness for God to search us and to check us. As David says in Psalm 51, to create in us a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. But I would suggest to you that in no praying circumstance is humility more needed than when we're praying for and about our enemies, about those with whom we are in conflict. There, I don't know if there's a praying situation where asking God to check our heart more matters more than this. Those who slander us. Because when people slander us, where does that hit us? Right here. And it runs deep. And when our heart gets involved, we get mixed up, don't we? And, and we mean well, but sometimes we act wrong anyway. And, and slander, it hits our heart, so we need God to check it. And in verses 3, 4, and 5, that's exactly what David does here. He says, Lord, listen, if this conflict I'm dealing with, if this slander, if it's my fault, if I did something to to start it, to inflame it, to, to continue it, to further it, to complicate it, you know what David says? He says, then I'll take what I've got coming. If this is my fault, I get it, Lord, and I understand that that it's gonna hurt for a while. So that's why David says, again, in verses 3, 4, and 5, make sure I'm clean. Oh, Lord, my God, look at verse 3. If I've done this, if there's injustice in my hands, if I've rewarded evil to a friend, if I've plundered him who without cause was my adversary, then let, listen, this is a hard prayer. Let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. <laughs> let him trample my life down to the ground and 
lay my glory in the dust. I'll take what I've got coming. But it's curious, and not at all coincidental, that this is also the place in the prayer. David says, make sure I'm clean. But then at the conclusion of that little section, verses 3, 4, and 5, for the first time, at least in our study of the Psalms together here, we encounter this Hebrew term, Selah. You've seen it in the Psalms perhaps before. In fact, it was on the screen earlier this morning. Selah is an interesting term. It appears 71 times throughout the book of Psalms, so we're going to see it again. And while some of its meaning may be a little bit nuanced, maybe a little bit unclear to us, when you see the Hebrew term Selah in the Psalms, what it's believed to signal is a pause, a musical interlude perhaps, where I stop talking and I stop speaking and I stop singing and simply meditate on what has been said or listen attentively to what God may want to say to me. See, sometimes we can get going in our songs and our praying and our preaching and, and just on and on and on and on and on and on, and we never stop to listen, and we never stop to actually worship. Selah is a, it's an act of worship. It is sort of a, a praise God sort of a thing, sort of a signal. But it's a reminder, just stop and think about what has just been said. Stop and let what God wants to say to you sink down deep in your heart. I think this is an interesting place for that to show up because David's saying, Lord, check my heart, and now I'm going to let you check it. You know, sometimes even we have those moments, we don't even realize it in our own worship. We have musical interludes as we're singing. Somebody keeps playing the guitar, no words, playing the piano, no words, and we go, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. That's a Selah moment. It can be. Lord, what did I just sing? What did I just say? Man, sink it deep in my heart. Praise you, God. Praise you, God, for who you are and what you've done. Those are important moments. Don't run them down. We need those moments of quiet. And, and David takes one here to ask God to search his heart, to check his attitude. And how critically important that really was here, given the request that David spills out next. He begins his prayer in this time of slander, of conflict. Lord, you are my refuge. I'm coming to you because I know you can handle it. But Lord, I need you to check my heart because I've gotten mixed up here and my emotions are involved and I need you to make sure I'm clean. But once he's done that, then he spills out his request. And in the next 11 verses, it's request after request after request after request, but he can sum it up this way and it's not easy. He says, now Lord, swing your holy hammer. As I pray about my enemies, I am asking you, Lord, to pick up your holy hammer and swing it. Let me ask you something. Think anybody here this morning, do you think you might squirm in your pew? Especially if you brought a, a visitor with you for the first time. And the following verses were what we read between this morning's songs rather than what we did read. Listen to this. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the rage of my adversaries. Verse 9, O Lord, let the evil of the wicked come to an end. Verses 12 and 13, if a man does not repent, God will sharpen his sword. He's bent his bow and made it ready. He's got, he's got uh, deadly weapons, verse 13, that he has prepared. He's got fiery arrows to shoot at the wicked. Do you think anybody would be upset if that was our scripture? Don't say that. You're going to scare people. You can't say that about God in church. We were saying he's a good, good father. I think people would squirm. Why? Because while the unbelieving world has always abhorred the, ideas of God, the idea of God's judgment, we live in a day when even Christians are uncomfortable with it. Don't tell me that he's judging. Don't tell me about his hot and holy anger. Why not? It's right there. 
It's all part of his character. It's part of what makes him almighty. What makes him the king of kings and, and lord of lords. But we're embarrassed by that. Our Friday morning prayer group, I talk about that. I'm going to talk about it more in the weeks to come. We call psalms like Psalm 7 the socket to them God psalms. Because that's exactly what the prayer is. Lord, deal with the enemies as their sins deserve. Socket to them. But is that, let me, here's the question. Is that what Jesus meant when he said to, to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us? I think so. At least in part. I think it's part of the prayer. We pray for our enemies. I think the answer, at least in part, is yes. If, if like David, we possess a proper biblical understanding of, of at least three things. These are not going to be on the screen, but I want you to make note of them. I believe this is at least part of the way we're to pray for our enemies, those who attack us and hate us and slander us for our faith, or even those within the faith who are slandering us at times. We can pray this way if we understand at least three things that David clearly understood here. First of all, the reality of evil. That evil, that wickedness is a real thing, and it's really, really bad. Remember what I told you last week in Psalm 2? The message of Psalm 2, the world is not neutral. The world's not a safe place. The world is racked with evil. There are good things here. There are beautiful things here, but there are wicked and dangerous things in this world too. We talked about the fact that this world and, the, and those who, who think they run it, they have, David says in Psalm, or the psalmist says in Psalm 2, set their hearts against the Lord by and large. What I'm saying is we really do live in a world where, according to verse 14 of this psalm, Psalm 7, there are those who really do travail with wickedness. That means they get in there and get mixed up with it and they make it their business, wickedness. There really are people who conceive mischief in their hearts and bring forth falsehood with their lips. This world is a wicked place. Think of ISIS. Think of abortion. Think of racism and corruption and greed and deception. The things people do to each other just, just to get ahead, just to have a little bit more. Listen, in a very practical and, and almost a, a simplistic sense, if, if, wick, if evil isn't real, if the world isn't wicked, why do movies have ratings? Why do CDs have content warnings? Why do even the most mainstream, safe, sound news stops on the, web, on the internet, news websites on the internet, have next to certain articles graphic content where don't go here unless you want your stomach to be turned? Why? Because the world's a wicked place. Evil is real. And I think this is a psalm, and there are many, and, and honestly, Psalm 7 is mild in terms of the socket to it, God's psalms. There are some worse ones, some harder ones. But even as you look at this one, here's my question. If, if that, that reality in this world doesn't make us angry, what does? We get angry when our teams lose. Do we get angry at evil and wickedness? We should. David was. He wasn't sit, taking it sitting down. He wasn't going to take it lightly. And you know what? We should be angry at the evil in the world because God is, verse 6, arise, O Lord, in your, what? Anger. Your hot, holy, righteous anger. It's, it's okay to pray this way about enemies and, and persecution and slander and all the rest if we first of all understand the reality of evil and hand in hand with that, verse 7, the judgment of God. God is a good, good father. Yes, he is. Praise him for it. He loves us so much, but he is also a judge. And verse 7 tells us that. 
In verse 7, what David does, and again, as you come from Hebrew to English and poetry to to preaching, some of this stuff can get lost in the shuffle. But what David really does, or he's trying to do in verse 7, is paint the picture in our minds of a vast courtroom in heaven where God himself presides as judge. What does he say? Let the assembly of the peoples encompass you. Let everybody gather around the Lord. And Lord, over them return on high where the Lord judges the people. And by the way, you know what the, else this psalm tells us about God, the righteous judge? He shows up for court armed. <laughs> He's his own bailiff. He's his own security detail. Look at verses again, 11 through 13. God is a righteous judge. He has indignation every day. That means he's angry at sin every day. And if a man doesn't repent, he will sharpen his sword. He has already bent his bow and made it ready. He's got deadly weapons. They are arrows and they're fiery. And you know what David does in verses 8 and 9? David pleads with God to use him against his enemies. The Lord judges the peoples. He says, vindicate me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and the integrity that's in me. He's not saying, God, I'm perfect. He's saying, in this instance, I'm clean. And let the evil of the wicked come to an end and then establish the righteous. That's the stuff, isn't it not, in the Bible that makes us squirm? Can you say that about God? Should you say that in in the company of, um, do we want people to know that this, yeah, we do actually. Because the third thing that enables us to pray this way biblically, and I believe compels us to in in certain situations, yes, there's the reality of evil that is met with the judgment of God, but even in this, I don't want you to miss it, there is an offer of mercy. We can pray this way when we also understand that in the midst of God's righteousness, he's also merciful. Look at the beginning of verse 12. If a man does not repent, he will sharpen his sword. What's the implication? A man can repent. A woman can repent. A young person can repent. What's the message? There is a way of escape for sinners. There is a way of escape for those who hate God and oppose him and have sinned wickedly against him, which is what all of us have done. There is a thread of mercy woven through God's righteous anger. Because remember, what is the message of the gospel? What's the message of the gospel? It is that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Anyone who repents of their sin, no matter what sins they've committed, can be cleansed and reconciled to this righteous God and heavenly Father. Anyone who repents will be saved. And so what am I saying? What does this psalm say about praying for those who slander us? I think here's kind of the bottom line is what it says. That that however few or many words it takes us to say it, the bottom line request is, Lord, save them or stop them. Save them or stop them. Be the God of their salvation or shut them up forever. I'm not saying that. David's saying that. I'm just delivering the news. (laughs) Save them or stop them. And again, I believe Psalm 7 gives us permission to pray that way. Again, after we've worshipped and had God check our hearts. Then we can say, Lord, swing your hammer. Swing it against the evil in the world. Then there's one more thing I want want you to see and then we'll be done. How does David pray in a season of opposition and hatred and slander? Lord, you are my refuge, number one. Make sure I'm clean, number two. Swing your hammer of justice, number three. And then he finishes in verse 17 with a cry, with a sort of a culmination of simply saying, and Lord, my hope is in you. The fourth handle for prayer here is, Lord, my hope is in 
you. Listen again to what he says. I will give thanks to the Lord according to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. Now, is it inappropriate for me to suggest, this is a rhetorical question, don't answer this, by the way, but that after laying such heavy burdens and requests before the Lord, verse 17 sounds a little squishy, a little flaky, kind of like David saying, Lord, stinks for them, but it's good for me. I want you to swing your hammer and wipe them out and fire arrows and all the rest, and I'll sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. I mean, does it seem like there's maybe just kind of like a disconnect here? It sort of does, at least to me. But there isn't. Because David is, in verse 17, as he closes his prayer, closes this psalm, he's expressing gratitude. But specifically what he is expressing gratitude, thankfulness for, is the assurance he has. Listen to me. The assurance he now possesses or has been reminded of that sooner or later, God will deal with the situation. Sooner or later, God will. A day will come when justice will be served. God will swing his hammer and he will not miss. And he's saying, Lord, I praise you for the fact that what's going on and it's wrong and it's wicked and why do the nations rage and and, and how long, oh Lord, that someday all those questions and prayers are going to be answered. They are. And they will. The wicked will be brought to justice and punished accordingly. The repentant will be delivered by God's great mercy. And those who have been crushed or all but crushed under the weight of slander, abuse, and even persecution will be not only vindicated, they'll be exalted. God's going to get the job done. And though he hasn't seen it yet, even in this situation, David is saying, I'll praise God because I know he will. I know he'll take care of the situation. And listen to me. This may be hard stuff for us to put together. But listen, if you're walking in David's sandals this morning, if you're in a season of slander, of persecution, and opposition, this is the best hope you've got. And it's a great hope to have. God's going to take care of it. Sooner or later. It's it's not going to go on forever. It's not going to last. This is the hope, Psalm 7, that will keep you moving forward. It will. Many years ago, many years ago now, when I played football in high school, our team kicked off, and I was on the kickoff team. We had scored a touchdown, kicked the ball, give it to the other team. And miracle of miracles, I made the tackle on the kickoff. We kicked off, and somehow in the course of this play, I ended up solo, face-to-face, with the guy who caught the ball, and I tackled him. I wrapped him up, and I laid him down, firmly but not, not, not harshly, just kind of laid him out. But I felt pretty good about myself because I didn't get to do that very, that was not my job. And I was kind of actually surprised that he was right in front of me, but I tackled him, laid him out, and I ran off the field of that kickoff feeling pretty good about myself. Excited, I made the play. Till the coach, one of the coaches, met me at the sideline. I thought he was going to pat me on the back. He grabbed me by my face mask and he looked at me and said, you know what your problem is, Teleki? Is this a rhetorical question? <laughs> I didn't answer. He said, you're too nice. (laughs) He said, this is football. You're going to hit somebody, hit somebody. If you're going to tackle somebody, make it count. And then he grabbed my face mask and threw me out of the way to show me that he meant what he was saying. As I walked away, I thought, you know, he's right. He's right. He had a message. His message, I was playing a violent game in an inadequate way. I was playing a tough game by squishy rules. I'd been taught to be a nice boy growing up. But football's not for nice boys. Football is for tough boys. And you play hard. 
What am I saying? He said, I was playing the game in a way that failed to acknowledge the reality of the situation. And here's my question as we close. Could the same be said about our prayers sometimes? Is it possible we pray with the same problem in mind? I'm saying in seasons of danger, of slander, and of distress, are our prayers too nice? Do they fail to acknowledge either the seriousness of the evil involved or the righteous indignation that our Heavenly Father has for it? I believe David's prayer here in Psalm 7 cries for us to pray in accordance with the reality that sin is real, that judgment is coming, that slander hurts, and we have a God in whom we can take refuge who one day is going to take care of it all. And that's why the big idea this morning is this. It is that God's righteousness is something we can rejoice in. God's righteousness is something we can rejoice in. So if you're being slandered, if you're being opposed, as you see the wickedness of this world that's addressed, uh, attacked on God's people or anyone else, let Psalm 7 be your guide. Let it teach you. God, use it to teach you to pray. Father, it is a hard world we live in. It's an evil place in so many. There's beauty, Father, there's joy. There are so many good things we can give thanks for, but Lord, we understand there's evil as well. Father, we even celebrate, just even this morning, the reality of an incredible ministry like Bridgehaven, but we grieve over the fact that it's necessary. Father, because the world has fallen, as just one example among many. Father, there are some folks here this morning, and there will be in our later service, who are going through seasons just like David. And if we're not there today, chances are at some point we will be. And, and you need, we need you to teach us to pray. Father, to love our enemies, but to pray for those who persecute us. To pray for your righteousness, for your judgment, for your holiness, but also for your mercy. Father, thank you that a day is coming, it is promised, when you're going to take all that's wrong and set it right. All that's broken, and not just fix it, but transform it. And Father, as your word teaches us to pray, we say, Maranatha. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, and do what you've promised. In Jesus' name.